Uh, my name is Ian Kitchen. I'm from the Department of Higher Education at Surrey University, so I'm a, a colleague of, of NISA's. Um, and I was sort of invited into this group really because a couple of years ago I knew nothing about migrant academics as a subject. Um, and then book said, uh, book said, Anissa said, we're doing a book. <laughs> um, are you interested in that? And I think that sounds exciting, yeah. So I got involved and started reading about this and started reading about Henry's life and Eric's life and Maya's life and other people's lives as well uh, and making marks in their chapters. So I apologise for any marks I've made in the chapters, but uh, it's a very interesting read and it's a really good book if you haven't ordered it yet. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, migrant academic. I apologise, I'm going to use the term migrant academic. I know it's not very nuanced, but I've only got 20 minutes, so I haven't got time for nuancing. And I'm going to use the term native academic, basically as a shorthand for British people, okay? Because, again, it's a very shorthand, and we can talk about which is the appropriate terminology at length, but not in the next 20 minutes, 19 minutes. Uh, there is quite a lot written about migrant academics in various formats, and Will can tell you all about that because he's been reviewing the literature for us. Uh, there's very little written about what the home or native academic thinks about the migrants. It's almost sort of not explored. And we got this grant to do this project, it's about the time of the Brexit vote, wasn't it? It just uh, happened. Just happened. <laughs> And we all know about the Brexit vote. And I don't know what your campus like was like that day in June, but at Surrey campus, you'd think that the Queen had died. I mean, everyone was going around as if the world was going to end. And not just the migrant academics either. The home academics were really upset by the whole thing. And at Surrey, we've got, I think it's 28%, is it, of our academic staff are migrants. Um, so it hit a lot of people very hard. Uh, and so we happen to be interested in, well, what are the benefits, actually? There are benefits. We know intuitively there are benefits to having people from all over the world come to work here, not just so that we can say that we are a globalised university on the website, but actually by talking to people and swapping ideas and all those sorts of things, it's just enriching all round. It's quite interesting talking to people from various places. And I apologise, I'm one of those people that goes around saying, where are you from? Okay? Because <laughs> I'm interested in where you are from, and what ideas I can pick from your brain, because you're from somewhere different. Um, am I a migrant academic? I've, I was born and raised in South Devon. I've lived and worked in Britain all my life. But South Devon and London, where I did my undergraduate degree, are very, very different. When I was a kid in South Devon, we thought the people in North Devon were weird. <laughs> and the people in Bristol, they were foreign. Okay? And then I went to do my degree in London. Wow, that really blew my mind. Yeah, I mean, London's is, you know, all these languages going on, restaurants from all over the world. I felt I had gone abroad, really. Um, and one of our colleagues in our sample said something similar, which I'll come across in a, in a minute. Fine. So, what were we doing? We were going to, what we did was to interview home academics, and that's more difficult to identify than you think. Because strictly speaking, one of my home academics isn't, because she confided in me that she uh, did a degree in Ireland. Which of course is not home, it's foreign, isn't it? Um, but she said, does it matter? I said, no, not really. Where do we draw the line between home and foreign and all the rest of it? it it's very, very arbitrary. 
We did it in three subjects. I took veterinary science, because we've got a, vet, a school of veterinary science. And I said, yeah, I'll find five vets, five home vets, and ask them about their experiences of working with international colleagues. And what did they gain from it? I'm enriching. And Nisa was going to do the same with engineering, and the Murata was going to do the same with education. Okay? And then we thought, what we can then do is to see if there are commonalities within subjects and commonalities across subjects. That's the idea, anyway. But what I didn't want to do was go in with preconceived ideas about these are sort of categories that are going to end up with, and therefore I'll give you a questionnaire and we'll sort of fit you in those categories and all that sort of stuff. I didn't want to do that. And I didn't want to do interviews where I ended up with hundreds of pages of transcript to go through. I just don't like that. So I used my favourite tool, and anyone who's met me before, one or two of you have, will know that it's concept mapping. And concept mapping is just this fantastic tool which will do so much your teaching, your, your research. So I use that in the interviews. Now, if you look in the literature, and I'm sorry this is a little bit fuzzy, we've tried to focus this, but that's as good as it gets. If you look in the literature, people are starting to use concept mapping as a tool in higher education. The problem is that most people are using it really badly, and most of the concepts you will find published are really happy, okay? Case in point. This is actually from a really good article, okay? So just in case the authors are in the room. Um, uh, being and becoming a university teacher in higher education research and development. It is a very, very interesting article. And they make a lot of very interesting comments in the article. But the actual map that they invited this person to produce is really crappy. That's the technical term for it. Um, and that's because it's just a mess, basically. It's just a splodge on a page. I don't know where to start reading. I don't know what the structure is. I don't know what the important bits are. The linking phrases don't really tell me an awful lot, except that there is a link there. And so I just don't like that at all. I can't use that. And I found this when I've been talking with academics as well. If you get them to produce a map, they will produce something you don't want and can't use. And so what we used was a methodology called map-mediated interviews, where basically I have sat down with the interviewee and I have interviewed them, basically I've asked them one question and invited them to talk about it and as they're talking I am putting labels down on a map and asking them where it should go on the page. So at the end of the interview the artifact that we've got is a concept map and it's not going to be a crappy one hopefully that goes all over the place because I'm there to guide them and say well let's try and bring that in or let's try and cut some things out. We don't want it too big and in fact, the smaller the concept map, very often, the better. Because they're focusing on concepts that are important to them, and then they also have to really focus hard on how those ideas are linked. And it's the linkage between those ideas that's really important. Rather than having a list of, yeah, there's 25 attributes, they think are important, here's the list. Well, so what? What does that list mean? I want to know how those ideas are integrated, how they affect each other. So, hence the mapping. So we did the map mediated interviews. Uh, I did five vets. I uh, invited them to come along, invited them to be a co-author on the paper. So they're also named on the ethics proposal as well, which really made the ethics people uh, blow their minds because I wasn't recruiting anybody. We were writing about ourselves. So who are you recruiting? <coughs> no. And then 10 signatures on the ethics approval. But anyway. Um, we mapped them, we mapped them using post-it notes and A3 paper. So it's very Blue Peter. Sorry, I know that's a UK reference, isn't it? And my academics might understand that. Um, you'll have to look it up, sorry. 
<laughs> so post-it notes and, and paper, and we played for anything between, I don't know, 30 minutes to 45 minutes, I suppose, for the interview. And I asked one question. Basically, I said, can you please talk about an interaction you've had with an international colleague? That's it. And off they go. And my other questions is, are things like, well, what do you mean by that? Can you find a better way of expressing that? How is that linked to this? Is that really important? Those sorts of things. So just one question, and we end up with the maps. The maps tend to be quite messy, because we spend 45 minutes drawing things and moving things. We have scribblings out, rubbings out, and all sorts of other things. So I then go away and digitise it, basically redraw it in PowerPoint. Uh, send it back to them, so I can say, is this what you meant? Do you want to change any words? Do you want to delete something? We were very careful not to identify individuals. Like, yeah, Fred's a real, eh, eh, okay, I don't like him. No, we can't say that, okay? Uh, they didn't actually say anything as explicit as that, so that wasn't the problem. But we had to make sure that people weren't identified. So if they say, yes, the Bolivian in our department, and there's only one, okay, well, we know who it is. So we had to make sure it was, it was like that. Um, the idea then, once they're happy with the map, is that they go away and construct a narrative. They write a bit more about it. They explore some of the ideas. Now, we could have done that, just, you say, go away and write a narrative about your experiences with internationals. Well, what do I write? Where do I start? And particularly if, in Lisa's case, dealing with engineers, writing in whole sentences is not the sort of thing they like to do. Okay? There isn't an equation to summarise it. They're not particularly happy. So the idea is that the map provides the basis for them to reflect on later. Uh, so they construct the narrative, and then the idea is that we then go in and write our papers and, and do the annotations towards that. So what we were after was what I would term excellent concept maps. So they only include information that is pertinent. So they don't just anything that comes out of your head to do with you know, foreigners and internationalisation. So anything that's not relevant, we get rid of. Uh, we make sure that the structure is logical, so we move things around, but ideas that are related to each other close on the map and ideas that aren't can go to each other. We really concentrate on the way those links are framed. Okay, So the worst link is, is related to or connects with or something like that. But it doesn't tell me how it relates to it. What's the impact of that idea on that idea? Those sorts of things. So we really worked a lot on developing the words that connect the ideas together. Um, then the idea is that once they've got the map, they can go away and use that map as an artifact to think a bit more detail about some examples or something they want to explain, and they can go away and write a bit of narrative. That's still problematic for some subject areas, uh, writing that bit of narrative. Um, the vets didn't seem too bothered by that. Once they had that framework and they knew what I was interested in, they said, oh, so you want me to write about this then, do you? Yes, please. And that was fine. And off they went. So we're looking at networks of ideas. Uh, and this paper, all the references will be on the, the final slide, um, looks at qualitative network analysis. Okay, That's the sort of researchy type literature label that goes on this. How do these networks structures, what do they look like? How do they manifest themselves? 
So we're not into looking at numbers, not into counting ideas or doing sort of anything numerical at all. It's, it's totally a qualitative an analysis of how these ideas fit together, what they look like, and what is important to the interviewee. If it's not important to the interviewee, then it didn't go in the map. And so here's an example, and you've all got a couple of examples, random examples on your chair. So this is an example of one uh, vet. Uh, this is her response to the interview. So my international teaching interactions, that was the starting point for all of them. Many of them said, actually they're positive. When you start to frame it in terms of your interactions with internationals or with foreigners, most of them are saying, positive, overall positive. If they have a negative experience, they tend to reframe it as it's not an interaction with an international, it's just an international with Bill, because don't like him. Nothing to do with the fact that he's from Uganda or something, it's just that I don't like Bill. Okay? So the internationalization thing was generally seen as positive. This one was quite interesting, because she talks about her work with a West African colleague, but she also talked a lot about how she had been sensitized to those interactions by previously having done some field work in that part of the world. So she had gone to that part of the world, felt really uncomfortable, found out a little bit about the customs and the way people do things over there. Um, apparently she was told off for her indirect English. If you want them to do that, tell them to do that. And she said, no, I'm English, I'm sticking to my pleases and thank yous. Okay, that was her decision. But she understood that there were differences in the nuances in the language. Um, so when it came to dealing with somebody in her own environment, she understood the sort of tensions, the sort of pressures that he was under to try and fit in, as it were. You've all got a map, or, or two maps, because there should be one on each side of the paper in front of you. Some of them are vet maps. The slightly more chunky ones are engineering maps. Anybody got any observations about any of the maps you've got there? Things that are jumping out from, from the map. So the characteristic of the international person. Okay. And those sorts of comments do come out quite a lot. One of them says, yeah, oh, this one, is it? Um, really good researcher, outstanding researcher. Um, some of them are talking about issues generated when you have groups of migrants from the same country. So if you've got four Spaniards in your department, and they all go up into the corner and speak Spanish, actually then the native academics feel isolated, rather than the migrant academics. So we often talk about individuals, but of course often we have groups of people within a department from the same area, so they can form a clique. And that tension can sometimes be problematic. Anything else? That we don't know, of course. Um, were they all being politically correct and nice about it all? Who, who can tell? I mean, when you're interviewing somebody, all you can go on is what they will tell you. Um, I got the impression that they weren't going out of their way to say something positive for me. And I would say sometimes, you know, was, was there any problem with there? Was that a negative thing? And it would always veer back to the positive. Generally, anyway. Yeah, their name's going to be on the paper. Their name won't necessarily be on the map, 
but their name will be on the paper. So yeah, do they want to put something and publish something that says, yeah, Surrey University is the worst place in the world to work if you're from Europe? Probably not. You'd make that assumption, wouldn't you? I mean, if I decided to say, right, I'm going to go off and work in South Sudan next week, it's a bit risky, Ian. Yeah, I know, but it's going to be fun, you know. I'm not that sort of person, which is why I've lived and worked in the UK all my life, probably. I'm not a risk taker, I guess, okay? Uh, it's very interesting, you know, that the whole term migrant academics, some of the people they were talking to are clearly people who have come over here for maybe two or three years, get experience, step on the CV, and they're likely to go again. Other people they're talking about are actually economic or political refugees don't necessarily want to be here either, but are happy to be here, rather than, uh, I was talking to, to a colleague um, last week, an academic from Syria. Mm -hmm. His one aim in life is to go back to Syria, but not tomorrow. So again, that's going to colour the way he's going to work with people. Um, one of the things that does come out is that the data is messy. Okay, I didn't want to impose a lot of order on the data and find Know, three different characteristics, they all fit in the shoe all them into that and that'll be fine and it'd be easy to write a paper. It does show that actually they're all different. All the interactions are different. It's very difficult to generalise, I think, on the interactions are like this because they're all a bit different. In the same way as you couldn't generalise, you know, even if you're not talking about migrants, if you're just talking about people from your own nationality, how could you generalise about how you interact with people? It's very, very different. Difficult, I so, what we're doing basically resonates a lot with some of the research, and you may or may not be familiar with it, uh, looking at cognitive network analysis, which is again, looking at the way people put ideas together. And we would expect, we might anticipate, that people from the same discipline have similar sorts of networks of ideas. So engineers think in engineering type ways, and vets think in vetty type ways, and educationists thinking in very strange ways, because is it really a discipline education? Mm. Did I say that? <laughs> um, another conversation. Um, so can we identify a cultural group? This is my first attempt to put the five VET maps together as one. So this is a sort of a, a synthesis, a squishing of the five maps and the major ideas in those maps into one map. Okay, I'm not sure it's quite right yet. But a lot of things come out. Um, they're saying that, you know, veterinary education is all about experiences, experiential learning. You do things with cats and dogs and mice and things. Um, and the international academics will change that experience. One of them was saying, for example, yeah, we, we talk a lot about parasitic diseases. Of course, most of the homegrown academics have never been to West Africa and seen these things. But if we've got someone from West Africa who's lived in that, maybe even suffered from some of these parasitic diseases, they're going to give a very different exposition to the students to somebody who's saying, well, page 52 shows this particular liver fluke. You know, it doesn't happen here, it happens in the tropics. Um, they're saying that the language of veterinary science... It's all right, you've got this discussion, right? yeah. yeah. The language of veterinary science sort of mediates stuff because the language of veterinary science is global. The problem is all the stuff that's not veterinary science, all the idioms. Yeah, it's raining cats and dogs today, isn't it? Really? That doesn't necessarily translate to somebody from the other side of the world. All those sorts of things. Accents. A lot of students 
on our modern evaluations, comment on accents and the difficulty of dealing with accents. The vet, one of the vets I interviewed was from South Wales and he said the biggest cultural shift he ever made was moving from South Wales to London. He has subsequently worked in various places around the world but he still says that was the biggest shift. Can we generalise? Not sure. This is an attempt. Okay, maybe wrong. But I think there are some ideas some, some, I, that we should explore. The idea of comfort and discomfort. How comfortable are you in your environment? If you're too comfortable, are you going to make any effort to do anything? If there's a little bit of discomfort, maybe you're more likely to engage in dialogue and learn stuff. Are you engaging in dialogue or are you isolated? Okay. Clearly, if you go abroad somewhere and you're not going to talk to anyone, you're not going to become part of the team. Are you looking at what these people value, or are you simply judging them on their actions, what they do? Yeah, he does slightly odd things. We don't know why, but he does slightly odd things. Just leave them alone, they'll be all right. You know, what are the values that are driving people? And if we look through these things, can we get to the point where we respect and understand our colleagues for who they are, rather than reject them for being strange and foreign? And if we do these things, does this lead to some sort of professional learning game? That is the big question. That you can now give me the answer. <laughs> I will stop talking. <laughs>